Hi and welcome back to Cursed Objects. My name's Dan Hancocks. And I'm Dr. Kasha T. And if you haven't listened before, the format is Kasha and I take it in turns to bring in a cursed object that we have become particularly sort of obsessed slash horrified by and sort of present it. as It's sort of like show and tell but with more Raymond Williams and Stuart Hall, I guess. Um, <laughs> accurate, very accurate. <laughs> uh, this week, uh, what I've brought in is, uh, it's an unlikely one, it's something that people have spotted on my bookshelves before and been uh, slightly alarmed by. It's an unofficial biography of Fern Cotton, the TV presenter from 2008. It's bright pink. It is simply called Fern Cotton, the biography, because I think with somebody like Fern Cotton, you just... You know, you just you just go for the, the sort of brute simplicity, don't you? <laughs> it says on the inside flyleaf of this hardback, uh, pink, very pink book, um, she's the most sexy, most stylish, and most popular star on TV. And she's taking the nation by storm! Exclamation <laughs> mark. Um, it is a biography of... So if you don't know Fern Cotton, and I was trying to explain this in the pub last night to some people who uh, were born outside the UK... Obviously, they didn't know who she was. She is she is very much the TV presenter who just presents TV programs. I think that's fair to say. Like she, you know, mm-hmm. some people get into that game via being a sports star or a musician or an actor, or whatever. She's a TV presenter. She's a straight down the line TV presenter. She presented Top of the Pops and a bunch of other light entertainment shows. She was on like kids TV uh, in her late teens, um, and this book is. This book is, I've been obsessed with this ever since I first was introduced to it. I'll, I'll take you back to where I discovered this book. Um, I know that sounds unlikely, but you'll see why. Uh, so my friend, my friend Ali, uh, back in the late 2000s, lived with a, an entertainment reporter who got sent a lot of this sort of crap by, um, you know, <clears throat> celebrity showbiz culture sort of PRs and stuff. And they had it sitting on their kitchen table when I went round to Ali's house one, one sort of Friday night. Um, and as we were drinking, we were sort of leafing through it. And you would not believe how bizarre the contents of this book are. The problem is this. The author of the book is like a, a, a sort of jobbing hack biographer who has never met Fern Cotton, never interviewed Fern Cotton, never interviewed anyone that Fern Cotton knows, and has clearly been asked, he's been given like the job, you got to write 250 pages on this uh, at the time, she was like 26-year-old TV presenter who has never done anything controversial, never said anything controversial. You'll have no material or resources except for what you can find on the internet or in the clippings libraries. So, like, you know, <laughs> going through... He's clearly... He's gone through, like, TV Quick magazine or Heat or whatever to just find anything he can about Fern Cotton. Mm. And there's nothing to say about her. She was famous 
But without, and I'll say this with all due respect, I'm going to probably have to see this caveat a lot uh, during this recording that like, <laughs> don't want to be mean about Fern Con, don't want to be mean about the author Nigel Goodall, who's just doing a job. Uh, if anything, he's a bit of a hero because he has managed to pull together tens of thousands of words about somebody who is fundamentally uninteresting <laughs> to like to read about. You know, um, she at this particular point in her career had... I mean, she was 26. She presented like two or three TV programs. That is not a person that deserves a biography, whoever they are. Um, and when you get into reading it, you realise just how desperate a situation the author has been put in by this like cheap cash-in publisher. And that's sort of what I want to talk about today is celebrity culture and how it produces crap associated with it, or certainly did at this particular point in the 2000s. For sale, that is just utterly like without value <laughs> basically um because as i say there's no insights he's not met fern cotton he's not met anyone who's met fern cotton he's not even like i'm probably i probably have like fewer degrees of separation from from fern cotton as as you do kasha than this poor man nigel goodall the the hack celebrity biographer <laughs> um so so let, let me let me let me just give you a little flavor from the book of how big a challenge this poor man has had in pulling together so much like so many pages it's a 250 page book about mm. somebody uh who's who's basically just been on telly a bit <laughs> um, and so this is literally page two of the book you get from the very outset you get a sense of this poor man's struggle so it, it reads if the secret of success is an unhappy childhood, then Fern should never have been destined for greatness in the world of television because her childhood was anything but unhappy. <laughs> there are no horror stories or of abuse or lost parentage or being moved from home to home, refuge to refuge, traumas that spiralled out of control or being raised by druggy parents. No, indeed, her story is quite the opposite. From the very beginning, it was quite clear that she was fortunate enough to have a pretty stable upbringing, unlike so many of Britain's most famous celebrities. He's annoyed already, right? It He's sounds like one of like... my like. It sounds like one of my undergrad essays. You know, when you like <laughs> use the word like therefore and like furthermore, like you overuse like really descriptive language because you're like, I have absolutely nothing to say about I don't know yep. whatever it is. Like, I have nothing to say about the invention of the printing press. So I'm just gonna really. <laughs> really go for so it so just gonna 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 pad the hell out of this i mean it's padding yeah. it's like but and the yeah. padding it starts it starts with him annoyed at how, what a stable ordinary middle class upbringing she has and how that's that's not pr produced any sort of you know um scandal or sort of an, even anecdote like Throughout the book, basically, he's drawing on quotes taken from interviews in in you know in magazines that point to the fact that she's actually she's really private. <laughs> she never gives anything away as a person. Um, it's full of lines like uh, like here, you know, it's sort of trying to get at her sex life in a cosmopolitan interview, in which she she <laughs> he kind of he writes the truth is a lot less sensational. And it's so much of it is written, so much of this book is written sort of in the negative. Like it describes things that would be interesting as far as he's concerned that tell right. us some stories, life, but that don't apply to her. So um, <laughs> he, he speculates about, you know, because she, she had like a slightly hippie mum, very slightly, not even that hippie, just slightly like she sort of worked in <clears throat> kind of alternative therapy and stuff. And he's, he's writing... 
Um, there's no evidence that Fern was outcast or ostracized because of her hippie hippie mum. And let's face it, if you if you were a hippie in the early to mid-90s, this would have been a definite no-no at school. Imagine it. Had she been a hippie, she would have been almost certainly considered wild, weird and antisocial. And by all accounts, she was none of those things. <laughs> certainly she was never bullied or battered, either as a youngster or in her adult life. Probably the worst thing that ever happened to her at school was being called Fern Tree or Furniture, the nicknames the other pupils bestowed on her. <laughs> Oh my god, again, it's like it really does read like some like very shoddy research that I would have conducted at one stage where yeah. I haven't actually done that much archival research or I haven't really done that much reading <laughs> and I don't really have any interesting take or angles. So I'm just kind of saying things that it's yeah. not. <laughs> exactly. And it's about to get worse, Kasha. Oh, so so from there, from there, and bear in mind we're only on page sixteen, he's already run out of things <laughs> to say about her. Um, uh, to the point that he starts writing about other people altogether. <laughs> and now just a little bit of background here. Um, useful to know that um, the author, Nigel Goodall, has written many, many of these biographies, right? I'm just going to read a few through a few of the titles. There's one called Being Davina, about Davina McCall. Amazing. There's Winona Ryder, the biography. <laughs> There's The Secret World of Johnny Depp. Oh. There's A Life in Time and Space, the biography of David Tennant. <laughs> there's Ky- Kylie Naked, a biography. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Demi Moore, the most powerful woman in Hollywood. There's Christian Slater, Back from the Edge. I would say quite the repertoire. Yeah, there's one on Ray Winston, the story of the ultimate screen hard man. <laughs> um <laughs> These books are all available for four pounds on Amazon. Now you may have noticed one of the names there was Winona Ryder, right? Stand by for this particular bit of the Fern Cotton, and that's the Fern Cotton biography. I'm going to read from it again. One last section here. Fern did not go through the same kind of nightmare as, say, actress Winona Ryder did, <laughs> who was far more of a hippie kid on the block than wannabe hippie Fern ever was. It happened when a group of fellow students decided to single Winona out on the third day in in the seventh grade. Seen as an effeminate boy, the incident occurred in the hallway of her new school in between classes. It basically goes on to, like, tell the story of Winona Ryder's (laughs) troubled adolescence at school. Um, and And then it bookends it. At the other end, it says, Fern never went through such an ordeal. So he just he just he just like tells the story of someone else. Fern Cotton and Winona Ryder are not friends. This is not a comparison that warrants warrants telling whatsoever. He then moves on to tell the story of Timothy Leary, the um, you know LSD kind of uh, pioneer and sort of um, kind of architect of sixties alternative culture for no reason, like for no reason at all, other than he finds Timothy Leary interesting and has clearly written about him at some point in the past and has been able to copy and paste some of the text from his other book into this one. There's no other reason for these people to be in a biography of British, like fundamentally quite dry, like uh, TV presenter Fern Cotton. Um, it's it's the equivalent, if anyone's if anyone's read or listened to the audiobook of the Alan Partridge autobiography, and I cannot recommend it enough, it's one of my favourite books ever, I Partridge, just brilliant, brilliant writing. Um, there is a there is a point where this sort of joke is made where Partridge clearly has been given a word count by his, you know, fictional publisher 
and has decided to just start padding it out with the Wikipedia page. He sort of says, you know, he's a radio presenter, and so he gives the the full Wikipedia definition of FM radio, <laughs> just to like, and then says at the end of it, like, you know, and anyone who says that I'm including all this detail just to pad out my word count can swivel. Um, but that's clearly what that's clearly what our, our poor man here, Nigel Goodall, has been doing, because he has so little to go on. And I think it's just, there's something... To sort of step back from the actual content, because I'm not going to read you the entire thing, because you don't need to know that much about Winona Ryder, I promise you. But um, <laughs> it's uh, it sort of really hit me in quite a profound way, because it sort of speaks to the like vapidity of a lot of the stuff swirling around celebrity culture. Yeah. Like, I'm not being a sno- I'm not being an anti-pop culture snob here. I'm talking about the products that sort of swirl around the actual celebrities themselves. The celebrities themselves, you know, I mean, we can maybe get into talking about people like Paris Hilton and other icons of the 2000s, because I do feel this is a very 2000s story, specifics mm. that decade. Mm. But it's the it's the fact that it's the sort of desire to cash in. Yeah, That's what this book says to me, that like, it's so desperate. Someone's thought, if we bash this book out, like, I'm sure, you know, we can get that, we can get that quote-unquote celebrity biographer to churn it out in two months. I'm sure his fee was not good. The unit cost or like the, you know, the production costs that have probably gone into the book are really low. I doubt they've advertised it. You know, mm. I doubt they spent much on PR. Just get it on the bloody shelves. Get it on Amazon. And then auntie and uncle that are sort of desperately trying to think of something to get their, their niece or nephew or probably niece, let's face it, for for their birth for for Christmas, yeah. Don't they like that fern cotton? Don't they? They watch telly. They you yeah. know they 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 well, you know they like her shows. Let let's get let's let's get this and like the amount of I mean there must be some actual fern cotton fans out there who were very disappointed by this. It's really interesting because it speaks to a number of kind of like cultural products, or I think it speaks to a number of issues. And one of them is about celebrity biographies as like stocking fillers at Christmas, which I I think Mm, is just mm -hmm. like, I personally, the only time I've actually been tempted to buy an autobiography was when I was writing my PhD and I was probably at like the lowest moment of my life. And, (laughs) (laughs) and I was watching quite a lot of like Dragon's Den mini clips on YouTube because they're like <laughs> about sure. about 13 minutes long. So if you're like writing yeah. and then you're like, oh, I want to watch something just to like not be thinking about my PhD. I'd watch these like really <laughs> awful, like, because Dragon's Den as a concept is so terrible. You know, it's just like get these like awful millionaires that we're supposed to like drool over telling like people who want to be millionaires how awful their products are or whatever you know it's such a bad idea for a show but there was this one woman on it Hilary DeVay and I don't know why but I just got so into her on the show that I was like I need to buy her autobiography and I was so close you know when you're like so close to like she one of the dragons sorry she was one of the dragons but only for like one year she had like a crazy life what's her what's her sort of what kind of business was she in? i think she was in I like mean, you don't know the answer to this because you didn't yeah. buy it. why didn't you buy it <laughs> i think she's into like logistics and haulage or something but she basically like Sick. she had a okay. really awful life <laughs> she had a terrible life but then oh, she right. made loads of money and she was on dragon's den for like a 
year and then she was on like Loose Women. It was just like one of these things where I was like at the lowest point of my life and I was like, maybe I'm going to do this. Maybe I'll finally do this. But obviously something saved me. Something called me back from buying a celebrity autobiography or biography. So I don't really understand the kind of... I don't really understand who buys them or for what reason. Well, and yet they do, sh- they sell, yeah, as you yeah. say. Like there's, you know, there, there's, I mean, it's sort of generally understood that in, well, I mean, I understand it to be the case anyway in publishing that you don't put out your regular sort of uh, nonfiction title in December or possibly even November. Like peak publishing period is basically spring and autumn. Mm. In the summer, everybody's away. In Christmas, the entire market is crowded out by celebrity sort of tat, basically, and celebrity celebrity titles, or you know, it might it might not necessarily be biography or autobiography. It it might, it, uh, although I think that's a massive part of it. It's also like lame lame as <laughs> lame as fuck kind of celebrity cash in cookery book or sort of I mean Christmas is the time of celebrity biography and autobiography. It's also the period where celebrities and I think this is increasingly the case write you know publish their crappy novel or their crappy kids book or their crappy cookbook and to that end I'm delighted to say that Fern Cotton is now an incredibly successful author herself since this came out in 2008 I think this biography that is today's cursed object was almost certainly the first book about Fern Cotton that came out but since then she has published like 30 odd books about one of one is about one's called quiet silencing the brain chatter and believing that you're good enough so she's she's done a bunch of self-help books which i had absolutely no idea about but then i guess i'm not the target market yeah she's done one she's done one on like uh yoga babies hasn't she Uh, right yeah that doesn't surprise me. There's one called Cook, Eat, Love, which I think, I mean, what a shameless title <laughs> in terms of like, yeah, I mean, she's clearly a very successful author at this stage. She has turned her celebrity to that. There's even one, there's a happy vegan cookbook for the whole family. Uh, it's called Happy Vegan. Cook Happy, Cook Healthy. Yeah, then you've got Yoga Babies. You've also got something called Hungry Babies. She's really actually, she's hit every single type of celebrity publishing that I can think of there, I think, which is kids' book, or maybe she hasn't done a novel. There's kids' book, there's like a believe in yourself kind of like self-help crap, and there's and there's several like needless cookery books that, you know, if you want a vegan cookery book, why not ask a chef? But fine. <laughs> she, yeah. also, she also wrote one with Holly Willoughby about like being best friends or something. So like... Yes, yes, I saw this, I saw yeah. this. Um, beautiful. We should do the same, right? Oh my god! No? This is no. This is our this that? is our best friend project, Anne. Cursed objects is our best friend project. <laughs> okay, fair play. But do you know fair what? Play. Like, because I think I think what's interesting. So I've got some thoughts on fan cotton, and I know that this conversation isn't really about fan cotton. It's I mean, it is about fan cotton, yeah. but it's also about the kind of like industries that surround the idea of celebrity, right? And we're using fan yeah. cotton as an example right. because. In a way, for like me and you, Fern Cotton feels kind of like the most inoffensive kind of. And it's interesting because you've kind of said that you're not the target audience. And um, I guess throughout all of this time, I am. You know, I have like my demographic of uh, like white middle class came of age when Fern Cotton was on television. Certainly would have seen her around quite a lot. And it was just really interesting when I was thinking about 
this episode because obviously I don't know anything about the object, only kind of like a very brief kind of like one or two lines about what we might be discussing. And I was just kind of thinking about how as a kind of like young, young teenager slash child, so I would have been like, I don't know, like 10 or 11 or something like that, maybe a bit Mm -hmm. older. Fern Cotton wasn't someone that I particularly liked. (laughs) And (laughs) I think that was kind of down to the fact that I saw her as a kind of like inoffensive extension of, she kind of utilized an aesthetic that was perhaps alternative. So it's not just that she's like, in that biography, she's described as hippie-like. But, you know, I always thought that she was Mm. the kind of person that would wear Metallica t-shirts, but not listen to Metallica. Do you know what I mean? Like, not that I feel particularly (laughs) strongly about Metallica. Oh my God. No, she is the physical embodiment of the Metallica t-shirt from Top Shop. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like a kind of watered down... personification, I would say. Yeah, like a watered down version of a kind of fringe subculture... Um, that was kind of in and around that kind of like pop rock kind of scene. She she was seen she was seen stepping out with Trey Cool from the drummer from Green Day. Yes, yeah, what that lame, kind of thing. What a lame, what a lame stage name. <laughs> I mean, I think she also went out with the with the guy from Lost Prophets who uh, is in jail for a long time uh, for horrible like crimes yeah um yeah. but that isn't that isn't covered that isn't covered in the biography because like not all of this nothing had happened uh, it, nothing, like, nothing happened had, had happened in yeah. her life at, by 2008 i i mean i really wanted to ask like yeah this you very much are i'm so glad you said that because like yeah age wise and like in terms of sort of who this stuff's targeting even probably down to the fact that you know you know, you're probably sort of the target market for like a book about like female best friends. And like, I'm still her target market. I'm still the target. So yeah, like, exactly. She's going to be with you your whole I know. life. Just and like I, moving. <laughs> I never realized that I had such a friend in Van Cotton, but like, you know, she's, she's kind of slight, she's slightly older than me, but the kind of culture that she uh, represents, it was targeted at people my age, essentially. And I think one mm, of the things mm. that I found quite challenging even at quite a young age around fern cotton was that in many ways i kind of hated how not about her i kind of felt that she was the embodiment of like the way that particularly men in like the entertainment or music industry would kind of like like manipulate i guess is the wrong kind of term but like Mm -hmm. use someone like fern cotton as a way to kind of connect with people like me in order to sell me things but also in a way that they kind of watered down the message or watered down the kind of aesthetic that maybe she was trying to go for, you know, with like the Metallica t-shirt, mm. watered it down to the extent where yeah. it didn't really feel like it had much meaning to me, you know? And I kind yeah, of, yeah. I think what was really interesting is that I kind of, my response to that from a young age was a kind of like a critique of the, is a kind of a critique of the power structures that operate around the world of celebrity. But also I think as mm-hmm. I've grown older, And I've kind of, I was just reflecting on this in relation to Fern Cotton. I'm also kind of reflecting on my internalized misogyny and also the external misogyny Mm -hmm. that existed around her and still exists around her, you know, so that especially around the kind of idea that like as a woman, she can't have like an authentic relationship with music, you know, like she's, Mm -hmm. she's the embodiment Mm -hmm. of the Topshop Metallica t-shirt. And if women do it, and as a professor, Lucy Robinson noted when she, she gave this amazing inaugural lecture, 
lecture. I think that's what they're called. She kind of explored uh, Bananarama and about how Bananarama have like fallen out of historical memory. She made the crowd repeat after like every couple of sections. If girls like it, it must be shit. So there is something there about how when women kind of express kind of genuine relationships with like music or identity, their authenticity, just as I kind of questioned her authenticity as a child, is constantly questioned. Do you see what I mean? So Mm -hmm. even at that young age, I was both her target audience, both someone that, you know, should have been buying her books, but was also someone who kind of thought of her as someone who was also a phony, you know, couldn't really, that she couldn't really like, phony, yeah, like a phony. And I think that's just it's just quite interesting that like Fern Cotton on so many levels that Fern Cotton is both a kind of mm. inoffensive embodiment of like celebrity pop culture in this country, but also stands as like a figure of like all of the internalized and external misogyny that like exists basically around celebrities. Yeah, that's uh, that's honestly, that's so interesting. Like that she's managing to sort of, yeah, embody the sort of th- those power structures and those sort of and the 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 way that they sort of oppress in in sort of several ways at once. And I kind of wanted to ask you about the two thousand about like that specifically with relation to the two thousands as a decade. Like you know, we we talk on this podcast now and then about sort of periodization as it's sort of known in in kind of history. Like so, like you know, why why draw the line at the beginning and the end of a decade necessarily? Like it's often not that useful. Uh, uh, it's often, you know, it's often like a slightly arbitrary way of drawing, drawing a boundary around something. We're not even going to get into the long nineties, so-called, but it is a useful way sometimes of understanding a particular kind of cultural moment, a structure of feeling. And what I wanted to ask you about the two thousands, and I was also, gonna, I was going to just read a little bit from a, a Guardian article on the subject, is sort of whether this was a uniquely awful kind of moment. Not not necessarily the worst moment, but a uniquely awful moment in the in in the character of the misogyny of the pop culture of that era, and how sort of the relationship between popular culture and celebrity and the treatment of like female celebrities sort of related to wider culture or perpetuated sort of misogyny in wider culture as a sort of like maybe post sort of nineties lad culture, but before Me Too mm. kind of moment. And there's this, you may, you may have, I don't know if you would have seen this at the time, it was actually only published in March this year after the Britney documentary came out, but um, Shirin Kale, who is a uh, big writer for The Guardian, she's a she's sort of often on The Guardian's pages, uh, wrote, wrote this piece, which I'm just going to read a little bit from. It's about sort of, like the, ultimate, the question it, it asks is, why were the 2000s so toxic for women? And she sort of goes into the Britney documentary and the treatment of Britney, which has obviously been discussed a lot this year. I'm just going to read a little bit from it. Sort of, it sort of, it kind of touches on like, you know, this is the moment in which the internet is sort of burgeoning. You've got TMZ and ParisHilton.com. You've got the explosion in popularity and power of magazines like Heat and Closer in the UK. So yes, Shirin uh, writes in the piece, for young women and girls, the 2000s truly were a cursed era. Obviously, we like any mention of the word cursed in any context. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, she goes on to say, like a paparazzo's flashbulb exploding in the face of an it girl stumbling out of Chateau Marmont, the period is currently undergoing a stark reappraisal. 
And like those paparazzi photos, it's a none too flattering portrait. In addition to framing Britney Spears, there is the upcoming Demi Lovato documentary Dancing with the Devil, which documents the 2000s Disney starlet's struggles with drug addiction. The recent BBC series Celebrity, a 21st century story, also features interviews with Kerry Katona and Charlotte Church, both tormented by the media in the 2000s, and footage of paparazzi upskirting women as they get into cars. Horrifying interviews have resurfaced online. In one 2003 clip, Diane Sawyer makes Britney Spears cry after blaming her for her breakup with Justin Timberlake. It goes on to sort of write about TMZ, the role of TMZ and Paris Hilton and stuff. Um, I just want to read out like one more bit from that article because it sort of slightly blew my mind. And Sheeran asked this, uh, this guy who's written a book about, about celebrity culture in the 2000s. She says, why were we so fascinated with celebrity culture in the 2000s? Widdicombe traces it back to the September 11th terror attacks. Quote, 9-11 was so traumatic and gruesome, he says, that when we recovered from the shock, editors said, we need a picture of a beautiful young girl on page 12, and we need to know who she's dating and what party she's going to. Now, that to me is an absolutely batshit explanation. <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to mention it just because it's, it's from... Not the horse's mouth, but like, you know, it's from a man, in fact, who was a guy who was doing a lot of the paparazzi photography and has, you know, done a sort of repentant memoir, basically. Uh, that's a that's a very bizarre connection to be able to see. 9-11 has absolutely nothing to do mm. with it. Uh, or nothing, nothing, nothing ostensible. I don't even think sort of ambient and atmospheric in terms of the wider culture, but maybe explain something of... Maybe explain something of the like need for like the fripperies of celebrity culture, but it does absolutely nothing to explain the misogyny. Yeah, yeah. Like as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't it doesn't doesn't account for it at all. But yeah, what I mean, what do you what what's your feeling about that? Um, as someone who was a teenager in the 2000s, is that right? Yeah. Um, do you know what? I, I, it's just it's so weird looking back, I guess, because of how normal all of that was. Like the kind of yeah. excessive, like ripping apart of people, especially young women who were, because they're in the public mm. eye, it was kind of like, well, they're fair game. And there was like a kind of well-known well, well known maxim that if you do this, you are giving away your autonomy. And I think what's really interesting yeah. about an unofficial biography of fern cotton is like it's like the symbol isn't it she about no control <laughs> yeah it's like the symbol of like absolutely having your autonomy con completely taken away that someone can cash in on your identity yeah. in such a direct way yeah it's, it's like ironic that like occasionally like the the author of this you know crappy unofficial biography will sort of allude to how private um relatively speaking like you know how how fern cotton keeps her cards close to her chest that she doesn't let much much of her actual private life sort of into the public eye and no wonder <laughs> like you know no wonder because because such is the culture of this moment and bear in mind 2008 this book comes out uh, such is the culture of this moment that like some publisher some like hack publisher has got some hack biographer to churn out a 250 page hardback book that costs 13.99 just desperately trying to like violate her autonomy or violate her right to a private life essentially mm. to to like i mean i'm not i'm not saying that like right the act of writing a biography is a violation of a private life but what you know the reason for this is that it's part of an industry and a wider pop culture that says we must know everything about fern cotton's life and there are people out there who want to know everything about fern cotton's life turns out you can't find out 
enough to fill a book about Fern Cotton's life at the age of 26 because she hasn't given much away and she hasn't really done anything. Like, there's nothing to say, you know, there, there, isn't, there isn't really a story to be told there. there. You know, I don't think there are many people that you could write an interesting biography of, at, you know, when they're in their mid-20s. It, it does seem to be specific to that period. And I think the other thing I wanted to ask you then was like, could this, would an equivalent book even be published now? Or has Instagram and the way that social media has changed that culture of celebrities. I think essentially celebrities now, my, my suggestion would be that celebrities now control their own narratives a lot more. Yeah, yeah, I agree. They, 100%. They sort of, there's, there's two sides to the coin. Like they, they are subject to, you know, round the clock kind of scrutiny mm. uh, of their what they put out there on social media and what their friend even like you know celebrity appears on their less famous friends kind of instagram stories that can get turned into a youtube video or a tiktok or whatever or like a viral something or other on on one platform or another like you know there's no there's very little it seems to be very little hiding if you are if you are a celebrity there's very little ability to just sort of shy away from the world but you are in control of your own narrative a lot more and yeah. the the Who's commissioning a book like this about an equivalent TV presenter in 2021? Probably nobody. Like, because because there's so much information available about these sorts of people from accounts that are run by them and more often their teams, you know, their PR and management teams, I would say. It's sort of cut out the middleman yeah. a little bit. I think what's interesting, I think not only are celebrities more in control of their narratives, like, so the stories that, that are told about them, but they are also uh, more, they have more control over the monetizing of those narratives. So I think a really yes. interesting point kind of to maybe draw out here is the cast of Geordie Shaw. <laughs> so interesting. Uh, the cast of Geordie Shaw. So I got really depressed one summer and I just spent the entire summer getting drunk and watching Geordie Shaw, like the old episodes of Geordie Shaw. <laughs> and it's like, you know, objectively one of the worst television programs that you can see it's um, really aggressive, really hyper-sexualized. Right. The people within it who are in the show have very little control over their, their own narratives. You know, they are like, yeah. they drink loads of alcohol. They behave in ways that like upon reflection, you know, like Vicky Pattinson, who's probably like the most famous, she kind of reflects and says, you know, a lot of the things that I did in that show weren't me. I cringe at the thought of the things yeah. that I was made, not made to do, but I did kind of in that environment in order to be entertaining for a, for a TV program because you want to be entertaining because if you're mm. not, then you'll be dropped. Do you see what I mean? So, yeah, um, yeah. You know, from going from a program and especially someone who's like quite interesting within this is also Chloe Ferry, who is in Georgie Shaw, because she also like she mm -hmm. went in when she was super young. Um, I think like there was some confident like issues around confidence there, 100 percent. And now she's like, you know, she's a millionaire. She has uh, I actually I think she made her first million on her Instagram. She just posts pictures of herself looking quite sexy and pictures to like the keys of her new house. But she also sells, sells like little air fresheners, I think, and like gummy bears that help you lose weight and all of this kind of like, you know, like nonsense stuff that I'm not sure how how it like gets anything but yeah that that's like the love island sort of career yeah 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 right? yeah, like yeah. that you the the that you then become famous enough through it that you can get all of the spawn con like partnerships and stuff to make a sustainable um freelance career working with you know brands and mm. you know 
whatever you know might be maybe there'll be some tv in there yeah you know? but like she doesn't need she doesn't need the press anymore to communicate with her fans yeah so she just does an instagram live story and just chats to her friends or like her fans over her instagram live right. and she like tags all her friends and that boosts their their platform so in a way there's kind of like a more direct relationship between like celebrities mm. and their fans that doesn't go through yeah. go through press outlets but what I think is really interesting is that like she's obviously also got a really really good publicist on her side because every once in, yeah. every once in a while there'll be like an article sometimes like you know as regularly as like once every two weeks or whatever there'll be an article which is like Chloe Ferry steps out in in green bikini and you know if you it's not a story because it's literally on her Instagram do you know what I mean it's like it's like saying oh Dan Hancock's had a really great curry and ate this like amazing like huge naan bread when he was in Bradford with his with his girlfriend yeah, where, Eve where is, where is the news where is the news story about me eating a giant naan well exactly like, like, the real question like the, da- the real question I'm not in the Daily Mail I I need to be in the Daily Mail sidebar of shame. Yeah. That's such a good point. I'm so this is so interesting, Katya. Like I think, yeah, the idea that like like how much do you think it has actually hurt those middle men? And it is I mean, it, again, it's I think it, you know, middle the middle man is a, a gendered word and but maybe that's relevant actually in the sense that like given the context of those uh the two thousands as a decade for sort of in which cultural misogyny I think yeah yes exactly it was just like completely all pervasive I mean the thing is the economic sort of surplus value that is being generated is still going some really dodgy people even aside from the fact that you know removing the celebrities themselves from the conversation whether they're them and their teams are good people or not you know it's a silly thing that we're not going to make a moral judgment about certainly not going to generalize about but like is it possible that actually the extra kind of profits from celebrity culture have shifted from you know the tabloids and heat magazine and paris hilton and tmz more towards um well, towards like to you know Mark Zuckerberg, basically you know to the owners of of Instagram and these platforms, you know those are the, those are the people that are that are ultimately like reaping the the sort of cream off the top profits wise of interest in a prurient interest in sort of celebrity culture and knowing the intimate details of every part of of their lives. Because you're right, like the you do still get those sort of cheap nothingy stories about what someone was wearing yesterday but the fact that they're having to just follow up on an Instagram post yeah like the reporting of a tweet the reporting of an Instagram post is so common now isn't it like here's what X said on their social media profile and you're like yeah I followed them I could literally see that if I was interested enough to click on this I would already be following them on that social media profile like it's sort of it's a little desperate isn't it it's sort of it's parasitical in the same way like you know again not wanting to be mean or whatever but like this book is ultimately parasitical it is Mm, um mm. it is attempting to attach itself to the existing work and you know the body of work of fern cotton as a tv presenter i mean that's what a cash-in is ultimately Mm. isn't it it's a parasitical kind of generation of like whether it's content or like a physical object in this particular case that seeks to sort of maximize um the existence of someone else without their without their say so yeah. basically without their cooperation something that I, I find really really interesting about that is the kind of awareness at one stage that like Fern Cotton and I guess in a way that she still is but maybe in a different way 
that she was really, really popular during this time. And I think that there is a really interesting mm. relationship between the press and fan cultures and how those fans are kind mm -hmm. of understood. And I guess that's kind of what a book mm -hmm. like this is, is trying to, it's trying to appeal to a certain demographic of people. And in preparation for this episode, I was thinking quite a lot about fan cultures. And again, my favorite mm. professor in the world, uh, Lucy Robinson. She's written really um, thoughtfully and carefully about fan cultures and she's kind of stressed that like fan cultures are usually usually seen as kind of like the worst kind of excessive behavior usually through like the mm. idea of like crowds of girls like screaming but what yeah. what she kind of shows and what she thinks about is how there's nothing kind of new about this phenomenon of like demonizing not just like the people that are selling the kind of records or selling whatever but also mm. the people that are fans of them yes and so she kind of she kind of draws out how uh, fan cultures for particular types of people, so like, I don't know, like Elvis fans are different from One Direction mm. fans. They're individually yeah. special in the kind of characteristics that they show off. They're not actually historically special. So she's like really keen to stress that like the internet didn't create kind of like cultures, like fan cultures. And instead, like, you know, she kind of draws out that they're the Penny Dreadfuls in the Edwardian period, or there's like TV, like news reports mm. of like girls screaming at Beatles concerts. Yeah. And there's always been kind of like a moral panic and a kind of worry about celebrities and also the people that follow celebrities, which I think is really interesting and quite yeah. relevant to this conversation. So she points to like a documentary clip, well, like a little clip in 1926 of a... Um, mm of the funeral of an actor, Rudolf Valentino, who died at 31 years old from uh. like complications from peritonitis. Mm -hmm. And she's really interested by the idea of the crowd, which is something that I know that you're really interested in. Oh, yes. And this is why I kind of wanted to say this. And she's like, when you see clips of crowds, you can see, uh, and they're often in kind of documentaries and whatever on, or on news reports, you get the sense of a kind of, them being out of control, like the mob being like physically out mm -hmm. of control as, sorry, the crowd being physically mm -hmm. out of control as a mob, but also a sense of the crowd being out of control psychologically, Yes, you know, with like fainting and weeping or like displaying characteristics that some think is aggressive. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And a hundred percent. Yeah. But I think what's interesting, and this is how I'm kind of drawing it all back together is that Actually, what we're kind of now drawing attention to is not necessarily how like the fans of Britney were out of control or the fans of Fern Cotton were out of control. Mm. I mean, it's hard to imagine that the fans of Fern Cotton were out of control, <laughs> but what we're kind of seeing a lot more of is kind of like a different lens being put on the role of the media and how the media itself yeah. was out of control. You know, how like photographers were mm -hmm. being out of control and newspapers were actually yeah. out of control. And I think before, I think it was very much a relationship of celebrity and their fans. Whereas like now we're kind of paying a lot more and a closer attention on those kind of mediators, those middlemen that you were just kind of talking mm -hmm. about that you were just describing. And it's staggering, isn't it? With the, with the anniversary of uh, sort of Diana's death in 1997, you know, considerably, you know, a good decade before this period, which was obviously followed by a huge amount of soul searching about the paparazzi and so on. It took, you know, it's taken 25 years, mm. <laughs> basically, mm. you mm. know, for this sort of reckoning to happen. I really feel like it's a quite recent thing that those mediators, those, yeah, those mediators, those middlemen are coming under scrutiny. You know, I remember, I've, I've got I've had this like flashback that I'd completely forgotten this happened, but Piers Morgan, when he was editor of the Daily Mirror, came to my uni and, and I went to see him speak because I was a budding student journalist at the time. <laughs> 
Uh, and he um, he said even then he was asked. Yeah, I know, cute. So isn't it? cute. Um, he, uh, I found some of my student newspapers recently, but that is another story. <laughs> uh, some cringe stuff in there. Oh boy. Um, but yeah, he uh, around this time, like so. This is like early two thousands. He's being challenged on exactly this sort of stuff. And bearing in mind, and I don't want us to get sued here, but something, something, phone hacking, something, something, the Daily Mirror. <laughs> like, you know, there was, that was that, like, this was the sort of peak of like, the like, outrageous malfeasance of like, large parts of the tabloid press, which they've gone largely unpunished, though a few people did go to jail. You know, the, the blagging, I think that's a specific like term for the sort of type of phone hacking they did and sort of, you know, stealing voice notes and from dead children and so on. Let's not forget just how sinister these people were. But yeah. Sorry, allegedly were or can something. we actually now say that they were? <laughs> they were sinister. <laughs> no, they were definitely sinister. I'm willing to, that stands up in court. Yeah. Uh, 100%. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so Piers Morgan's like challenged about kind of this exploitative prurient life ruining like paparazzi culture and he gives the answer that i think you alluded to earlier kasha which is that which is like well they've chosen to put themselves in the public eye they are absolutely fair game and like that is such a it's such a british idea somehow and i'm aware that like our tabloid culture is viewed by large parts of the world as absolutely bonkers like it just not you wouldn't get away with it in the states i think you know for its the many problems with the media culture on that side of the atlantic have you seen that there's like a clip i think i can't remember who it was there's like a french president who had an affair maybe like with like a british person Mm. which is why the british press were interested Mm. and i think the bbc maybe like went over to france and was like oh so you know, this this president's been like, you know, shagging his shagging his secretary or whatever. And like everyone mm. that they interviewed was like, Yeah, we don't care. Like it's none of our business. Whereas like over <laughs> here, it would be so it is so our business, you know? Like we lap it all up. Yeah. You know, the Jennifer Akuri stuff and like yeah. you know, all of the all of the rumors around Boris Johnson's like love life and whatever. I can't quite bring myself to say of... sex life because it just makes me feel too too uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, love, love life is kind of worse it's... because it implies that there's some it sense of love there. Because it's euphemistic. <laughs> <laughs> I love that it sort of forced you to be prudish because it's so disgusting to contemplate. <laughs> so gross. Um, so do you think it's like, I mean, is there a curtain-twitching sort of British sensibility at work here that is you know you can pin down somehow to like british society at large rather than its media necessarily like are we particularly or are we or do we just have a media that is so badly regulated that it gets away with the shit that like everybody else would love to as well yeah i don't know it's a tough one to call isn't it because again they write this nonsense they write this stuff but people still buy those mag- that people still buy those newspapers. They <laughs> buy those magazines. Mm. They vicariously talk about it and chat about it in coffee shops, you know? Like yeah, yeah. they are still seen as like these stories are seen as fair game. Yeah, yeah. You know, even as like recently as like, who is that um government advisor who like turns out he was like in an open was it Chris Whitty? I don't know, one of them who's like in an open relationship with like his PhD student or someone like that, you know? And like oh, yeah, yeah. And like the media were just going crazy yeah. about it because they were like, Oh my god, he's telling us to lock down and he's like sleeping with this woman. 
And you know, this man is like, not even like, he's not even elected. He's someone who's there as a, literally as a scientific advisor. His role is like to help. Yeah. And he's yeah. seen as fair game. Do you know what I mean? It's just. No, he's not. That was a particularly absurd example as if he's like, yeah, he's not even, he's not even step, set foot in front of the electorate and said, I think the only context in which sort of that sort of judging of public figures on their personal lives assuming all can you know everyone is a consenting adult and so on is is sort of the the only context in which like it's it is fair game my opinion is is the sort of example of like the tory mp who is lecturing like single mothers on like their moral like you know their lack of moral virtues mm. like you know if it's if there's if there's that pronounced a level of hypocrisy well i'm thinking specifically of the 90s major government and their and their sort of moralizing uh, they're, they're, they're absurd sort of quote-unquote back to basics, uh, back to Victorian values, rhetoric, you know, which which if, you know, if personal behaviour then goes completely against what you're lecturing every, the public on, then maybe you can say, look at these hypocrites, but the rest of the time, honestly, who gives a damn? Mm, mm. <laughs> 100%. So um, that about does it for today. If you want to read Fern Cotton, the biography, copies are available on Amazon.co.uk now. Um, possibly not anywhere else, unless you can find one of those bookworks, remainder bookshops, sort of book you would sort of, I think, expect to find there, uh, perhaps. Um, it's, been, it's been a lovely chat. We're very delighted to be back. Thank you very much, Kashar. Also, if you are interested in learning more about Lucy Robinson's work, she's really active on Twitter. I, yeah, I, I think Lucy's amazing as well. I did a panel discussion with her once at the ICA. Did you? Yeah, don't know what no, I'm talking about. I love her. I she's, know, I, like, she's, we, my old, she's my old lecturer. She probably doesn't remember me. Oh, I'm a, yeah, no, I know. You, you're, you're a big fan. But so am I. And I, yeah, I, I actually really want to read more of her stuff on, on the sort of, sort of gendering of like fan cultures and fangirl sort of stuff uh is is particularly is is really interesting and really relevant today still you know with things like the bay hive and god that's that's a really outdated example isn't it really but like you know even on social media Arbs and Nicki minaj's yes. mixers are little mixers ones i know because of the recent controversy is that what they're called yeah, i know about the recent controversy with <laughs> yeah one of their former members jesse jesse nelson yes jesse nelson with one yes. s I had to Google, I had to search Jesse Nelson. I was like, what? I, I literally don't know who this is. And it's all over my timeline. Oh, someone from Little Mix, right? right. That explains yeah, yeah. it, yeah. Um, Lady Gaga's Little Monsters. Yeah. What are the BTS fans called? Oh, I have no I, idea. I can't what the BTS then, Do you know what? Yeah. I feel like they're never um, referred to like as, as like a name. They're just like often in news re like reports about them. It's just like... K-pop fans, K-pop fans destabilize Twitter. K-pop fans take on Donald Trump, and it's like, what are they not? Do they not have a name? Like, I don't know why. All of the K-pop fans, yeah, yeah as if taking this isn't on Donald like Trump, a vast, a vast, a vast mass of like millions of people around the world yeah. with completely different subjective <laughs> positions. So, um, there's some really good stuff on Time to Say Goodbye about K-pop fans. Uh, if you go back through the Time to Say Goodbye podcast archives, one of my favourite American podcasts, they, uh, they they talk really interestingly and lucidly about about K-pop. K-pop stands, I think. K-pop stands. 
title and their sort of political valence and so on. But yeah, it's been it's been a fun first couple of episodes to the new series of Cursed Objects. So thanks very much for joining us again. So yeah, there's going to be 10 episodes of this series as well. Please do sign up to our Patreon. You'll get all those bonus episodes and more besides. Uh, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Thanks again. Bye, thanks guys. For Bye.